Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wool on us. Painting and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Looking at the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Uh, we'll get all the usual stuff out of the way very quickly. If you like the podcast, please tell someone about it and write a review on iTunes. I know that not everyone uses iTunes. I don't use iTunes. But apparently, unless you have lots of reviews at iTunes, your podcast disappears or something weird like that. Uh, and if you really like the podcast, uh, please back us on Patreon because, well, that's the only way we make any money from these podcasts. We've been doing it for almost three years now, and we've never put any ads on them or anything, so you're not hearing us pushing mattresses or underwear or whatever else every other podcast is advertising. Uh, we're just doing this, and any support uh, that we get on Patreon helps quite a bit. So thank you. Now, on to today's topic. Uh, if you haven't noticed by now, uh, we live in something of a surveillance state. Uh, while the Snowden revelations revealed a bunch of details about how this is happening and what is going on, it's actually been going on well, for a lot longer than uh, since 2013 when he showed up on the scene. But the combination of technology and surveillance has raised all sorts of legal issues. And they're ones that courts have struggled with massively um, in the past few years. Indeed, uh, so much of what law enforcement and the intelligence community is able to access has to do with legal precedents that were decided decades ago based on maybe a single person or a single unique set of circumstances. And that rule, those rules uh, that were written decades ago with very different technology now apply to basically everyone. Uh, so, for example, have you ever wondered why the NSA can suck up every single phone record without a warrant when the whole point of the Fourth Amendment was to prevent so-called general warrants that could collect all sorts of information? Well, it actually has to do with a case involving police accessing phone records of a single robber in a case that few thought was all that important until it was realized that the entire bulk mass surveillance effort of the NSA was secretly based on it. There are all sorts of stories like these, uh, cases that were decided when technology was simpler and not nearly as widespread that are now being applied broadly to everyone and where that same technology is everywhere. Uh, reporter Sarus Farvar uh, has written an incredible new book that uh, comes out today, assuming this podcast is released on time, uh, called Habeas Data, Privacy versus the Rise of the uh, surveillance tech. Uh, and the book digs deep into a bunch of these different precedents and really tells the story behind them and how they've uh, now been transformed into the underpinnings of a surveillance state that would almost certainly flummox the <laughs> framers of the Constitution. Uh, we've written about most of these cases on TechTrade over the years, but uh, but the book does two things amazingly well. Um, first, it, it really tells the stories of not just the cases, but the various players involved in the cases and how everything happened. And also how it plays into the sort of larger narrative of the book of, of how um, this surveillance state has come about. 
And while you might think that reading about lawsuits, often lawsuits that are decades old, may be dry or not that interesting, this book is exactly the opposite of that. It is the opposite of dry. The uh, storytelling is incredibly compelling, and the book is is honestly very difficult to put down, whether you know about these cases or uh, whether you've just discovered this entire issue. It is a, a fascinating, well-written, very enjoyable, uh, eye-opening, and enlightening book, again, no matter where on the scale of knowledge you are on these things. Um, and so today on the podcast, we have Sarus uh, here to talk with us. So welcome Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. So uh, there are all sorts of reasons why anyone might want to write a book like this. Uh, but for you, it, it felt like uh, this one actually seemed a bit personal uh, from your description in the book. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with uh, just starting with like automatic license plate readers in Oakland? Sure. So, yeah, um, I live in Oakland, California, which um people might know, is just directly across the bay from San Francisco. I've lived most of my adult life in, here in the Bay Area. And, um, you know, for the last six years, I've been a reporter at Ars Technica. And, you know, when I first started at Ars, I had not really reported much on surveillance. I had reported uh, not very much on legal issues, on law enforcement issues or anything like that. Um, but I started reading about uh, this technology that I'd never heard of before uh, called license plate readers. Um, and actually, funny story, I had forgotten when I uh, first started writing about license plate readers in 2012 and 2013, um, I had forgotten that I'd actually written about license plate readers years earlier. <laughs> hmm. I had written a story back for um, what was then called Wired News, which was the uh, you know, online um, website of, of Wired Magazine, although technically it was separate from Wired Magazine at the time due to weird business reasons. Right. Um, but I had written I had written a story that I had honestly forgotten that I had written. Um, and it was about how the L.A. Sheriff's Department, I think this was in like 2005 or six, somewhere in there. Um, it was about how the L.A. Sheriff's Department was testing this new technology called license plate readers. And, you know, they were using them to scan um, you know, license plates and capture bad guys, capture criminal suspects, all that kind of thing. And I spoke with this um, very fun and interesting and gregarious um, L.A. Sheriff's, uh, I think he was a commander at the time, um, a guy by the name of Sid Hale. And he was my main source for that story, that Wired story. And he was saying, oh, you know, this is great. We can do our jobs better. Um, we can uh, you know, catch more suspects and, and that's all good. And this is, this technology is amazing. And so th if you go and you read the story I wrote at that time, you know, that's essentially the tone that it takes. It's, it's kind of a, almost like a whiz bang, you know, gee whiz type of, type of, uh, <laughs> type of story, because honestly, I didn't have the wherewithal or the, you know, thoughtfulness or the background, uh, to really understand, what that actually meant. And, um, you know, I don't know if, Mike, if maybe you've experienced this too, where, like, you first, you know, write about something, hear about something, and it kind of sounds good, but then the more you sit with it, the more <laughs> folks you talk to, you maybe feel a little bit differently. Yeah, so sure. when I, when I um, started writing about licensed readers again in, in 2012, 2013, you know, again, I had forgotten that I'd written about them once before. Um, so the... I had first, I think it was on the uh, blog of the ACLU of Massachusetts, and they had this blog post, and they were talking about how there were local hearings about license plate readers in towns um, in and around Boston. 
And they were explaining how these technologies were being used by police departments uh, all over Massachusetts and that oftentimes uh, the law enforcement agency in question uh, did not have policies dictating how they would be used, how long the data would be kept. Uh, and they were sort of painting this picture that raised a lot of new questions for me, which is, you know, how does this technology work? Who has access to this data? How long is it kept? What is the legal authority that allows, uh, you know, police departments to, to do this? And then as I started looking into it more, I started to realize that not only were license plate or not only were license plate readers being used in, you know, Boston and Los Angeles and a few other big cities in America, they were being used in cities and counties big and small all over the country, including the city where I live in, in Oakland, right, you know, right here. And that was really eye-opening to me. I didn't, you know, I had never really seen any, you know, big articles in the media, um, uh, you know, about how this technology uh, was so pervasive and so prevalent. And so I started really trying to better understand, um, you know, what, how this how this was being used in real life, in real cases, you know. And I started uh, filing public records requests um, to learn about, at first, uh, my own data. Um, so one of the first big stories that I did on license plate readers was where I filed a public records request, not only with Oakland, but with a bunch of neighboring cities in the Bay Area, San Francisco, Berkeley, uh, Piedmont, which is a small city right next to Oakland, um, my hometown of Santa Monica, California, Los Angeles, Los Angeles County, uh, a number of other law enforcement agencies around California to see where my license plate had been scanned. Um, Oakland, it turned out, was very forthright in coming back with the records, and they gave me, I think it was something like 15 records times that my car had been scanned around town over the course of a year. Um, Santa Monica, uh, where I go, you know, a few times a year to visit family, um, they had scanned me once. Um, you know, other agencies uh, would not give me records uh, claiming mm. that these were exempt under the California Public Records Act. The city of Piedmont, for example, uh, refused to give me any records. Um, and so did the city of L.A. and so did the L.A. Sheriff's Department. Um, but so I started to, you know, try to think about uh, how, you know, this technology was was being used. And, and later on, a couple of years later, uh, I did a story for ours also about where I not only asked for records about myself, I asked the city of Oakland to give me the entire LPR license plate reader scan database. So every single plate that they had scanned. And amazingly, they did. Uh, amazingly, they gave me <laughs> 4.6 million records um, that they had captured over the course of, I think it was four or five years. Um, because at that time, Oakland had no policy as to how long they should keep this data. And I sort of, I sort of think about um, the fact that they kept such a large volume of data uh, to, you know, how a lot of us use uh, Gmail, right? And Gmail, right. you know, storage is, is practically infinite. I mean, I think technically our, you know, free Gmail has something like 30 um, uh, gigs or something. But, you know, you can pay for, for more. And storage is stupidly cheap now, right? And a lot of yep. us, I know I do, you know, you sort of, you, you get a message and you, you know, swipe on your phone or you click the little archive box on your inbox and you save it on the off chance that in six years that email might be useful for some reason, <laughs> right? We all do right. this. We all do this. It, it, it makes sense, right? But um, 
But it's a, and so it's totally, I, I can totally understand from the police's perspective why it would be useful to capture all of these, these plates and keep them for such long periods of time. Um, but the problem is, is that, you know, if you're the police, if you're the government, right, you have uh, a lot of powers that regular people don't have, right? Um, yep. And so when you are capturing all of that kind of data, and particularly when you're talking about somebody's location, right, where they're driving or where their car has been seen or parked, um, you know, given a large enough sample size, and this is what became clear to me once I had 4.6 million records at my fingertips, was I could literally walk down any street in Oakland, see a license plate, just any license plate on the street, punch it into my little database, and we um, hired a, a local... Um, uh, UX designer to come up with a little tool uh, where we could, you know, punch in a plate. Because what they actually sent me was 20 Excel spreadsheets with hundreds of thousands of lines <laughs> of of data. Each it was it was an unredacted plate number, date, time, and a GPS location. Um, uh -huh. And you know, hundreds of thousand. I mean, 4.6 million of them. Um, it's kind of amazing they were keeping it in, in, in an Excel spreadsheet. But. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so we created a tool, or we, you know, a, a guy by the name of Mike Tahani helped us create a tool um, that basically allowed me to punch in uh, any plate number and have it be plotted on a map so that you could easily see it. Um, because I don't know about you, but I'm not very good at knowing, you know, what a GPS lat long <laughs> set of coordinates right. means. Um but um, but it was sort of incredible to see, and I could you know I, I felt when I when we had this tool, I felt like a you know kind of creepy superhero <laughs> because I had this <laughs> I had this power. I suddenly had this power where I could put you know punch in any plate that I would see on the street and just find out something about that person. Right? I didn't know who owned that car. I didn't know uh, you know what their name was or where they lived or anything like that. But I did know that, you know, they had, their car had been scanned, you know, on certain places on certain dates at certain times. And it was very easy. I realized in many instances to learn even just a basic pattern of behavior. And I'll give you a good example of that. So I reached out to all the members of the Oakland city council um, to try to get them to comment on on uh, what I had found. The only person that responded to me was a guy by the name of Dan Kalb, K-A-L-B. Uh, Councilman Kalb lives in um, North Oakland in a neighborhood uh, called Temescal. And he, and so I went to his office with my little, with my laptop, and I pulled out my little tool that, that we had. And I said, Councilman, um, would you give me your license plate number? And he said, sure. And he gave it to me, and I punched it into the thing, and and sure enough, I, I saw that his car had been scanned a number of times uh, on a certain block in the district that he represents. But I didn't know precisely which street he lives on. But I said, Councilman, is this the street that you live on? And he said, yeah, it is. Uh, and I could see that there was a cluster of times where he'd been scanned on his own street and a cluster of times when he had been scanned outside of City Hall because conveniently uh, Oakland City Council provides on-street public parking for all of its city council members. And you know which car Dan Kalbs is because it says, uh, I think he's District 1, um, you know, council member reserved for District 1, you know, in this particular spot. So, you know, if you wanted to go figure out where Dan Kalbs is going, you could, you could do that. Um, and he was a little bit surprised that, uh, that with just that information, with just a scan, um, that I could find out, you know, where he lived. Um, and, you know, I'm sure Dan Kalb is not doing anything nefarious. 
you know, most of us are not doing anything nefarious. But nonetheless, I think most of us would find it a little bit maybe creepy uh, yeah. that um, there's this level of detail. And, you know, that's just kind of one example of going from your home to your work to City Hall, whether you work at City Hall or wherever else. But, you know, imagine if you're doing something that is totally legal, but that you might not necessarily want the Oakland police or any other government agency uh, to know about, right? Let's say... Uh, or any, or regular... anyone who has access to, to your database. Exactly. <laughs> Which is, <laughs> Which the, is the me. The entire public, right. <laughs> exactly. Right. I mean, there's lots of, there's lots of uh, examples of, of lawful activity, right? Uh, you know, if you're me, um, uh, you know, you, I like to go to certain beer bars in downtown Oakland. I like to go to East Oakland and get tacos. Um, you know, but, uh, but there's lots of other activity that, that other people, you know, partake in. Uh, you might like to go to certain marijuana dispensaries in Oakland and, you know, marijuana is basically legal in California now, but it's not legal federally. Uh, and you right. might not necessarily want, um, the police or any other government entity to know that, you know, every Thursday at six thirty, uh, you know, for the last couple of months, your car has been spotted outside of, uh, you know, bloom dispensary on West grand in Oakland, or <laughs> that you like to go to, um, a, that you like to go, um, to a certain, you know, sex toy shop in town, or that you like to go to church on Sundays, or that you like to go to mosque on Fridays, or that you like to go to Jewish religious services on Saturdays, or that you um, visited an abortion clinic, or that you visited the offices of the ACLU, or that you drove out of town and, um, you know, I don't think there are any gun stores in Oakland, but right, imagine you live in a place <laughs> where there's a gun store, right? Like, um, right. you know, like th there's or, lots or, of activity. Or, or you visit, you know, visit a particular type of doctor or, you know, exactly. there's a whole bunch exactly. of things where, where exactly. yeah, it, it matters. And all of those things that I've just listed, all of those are legal activities, right? There, it's, right. There's no, uh, you, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing against the law about going to those places. But, you know, we might not necessarily want uh, there to be a record of the fact uh, potentially for kept by the police for years on end um, that we you know participated in that activity um, right. so so that was the sort of uh, beginning for me of, of trying to understand license plate readers and what the implications of this technology are and then as you said you know at the beginning right I started to try to understand well what is the legal authority that allows the police to use this technology in this kind of way is there some sort of specific statute that that authorizes it um you know what are what is the court precedent uh, behind it and in my book i talk about um a uh supreme court case from the early 1980s called united states versus knots and knots um i i sort of think of this so this case involves a meth gang out of minnesota in the 70s um, and I sort of imagine these guys as being the, you know, Minnesota 70s version, you know, with cool 70s cars, um, <laughs> the the sort of Minnesota equivalent of, you know, Breaking Bad, right? This is the, right. these guys right, <laughs> in court papers. Literally, one of them is described as a chemist. Uh, he originally started working at 3M, which is like the big, you know, chemical company out of Minnesota. Um, and, you know, and these guys decide that it's a good idea to make amphetamines and methamphetamines. And they, you know, they have to move around town because the, you know, guess what? Making these, you know, substances is illegal. Um, they, you know, convert a basement at one point. They, they you know, the, the, the authorities are kind of on to them. Eventually, uh, they decide that they're going to move their operation not only out of the Twin Cities, but out of Minnesota entirely. One of them has a cabin um, that's in a place called Shell Lake, Wisconsin, which is, I think, roughly 100 miles from the Twin Cities. And 
so they, the authorities who've been monitoring them for some time um, decide that they're going to put what is described in court papers as a beeper. Uh, this is a low-range uh, FM transmitter. And unfortunately, we don't have pictures of what the beeper looked like. But I imagine that it couldn't have been super big because, uh, you know, the court records tell us that um, with the permission of this chemical uh, supplier, uh, they, uh, the police put this beeper on a drum of chloroform, which I guess you need to, I've never tried to make meth, but I, it sounds like that that's <laughs> something that you need to make meth. Um, and so they put it, they put this little thing on the drum and, you know, I sort of imagine, you know, this guy driving over, picking up his drum, uh, putting it in a truck. Uh, and then, um, you know, at one point they, he has to go pick up something and then he starts his journey out to, to Wisconsin. He doesn't know that he's being followed by the police. Um, and this, this little beeper, this short range FM transmitter, uh, is basically telling, uh, the police where he is, where, right? Uh, and, and watching him go, you know, through, through town. And because this is the seventies, I sort of imagine, right, the police don't have laptops in their cars. They certainly don't have smartphones, obviously. They don't have GPS, right? This is the best they can do at the time. Um, and I sort of imagine them having, you know, one of those, like, little submarine radar things with a sweeping uh, radius going in a circle and a little dot, you know, like blinking. That's that's kind of what I imagine. I have no, I don't know exactly what this kind of <laughs> interface that the officer right. had, but that's I I kind of want to believe that it's like some, some something like that where it's just literally one, you know, pixel you know, right. being on a screen. Like on it, a, on it a couldn't green have been... round screen. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, it couldn't have been more sophisticated than that. I mean, you know, right. this is the this is the 70s that we're talking about. So, so they're going along, and they're watching this guy drive around, and they're following him, and they have to keep, you know, because they don't have, you know, sophisticated maps. They don't have Google Maps or anything, um, right? They 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 have to follow him, follow this guy, uh, driving around uh, as he proceeds towards Wisconsin, and they have to be close enough so that they could see him, but far away enough so that he doesn't notice. Um, okay, so they, they go along, and at one point they lose the signal, they have to call in a helicopter, uh, and eventually they do, um, you know, track him to this cabin. And eventually, um, they, the police get a search warrant to search the cabin, they find all the meth stuff, they arrest the guys. Um, a, um, some of them plead guilty, but a couple of them challenge um, uh, you know, the, the, the drug charges and so forth. Eventually, the case gets, um, you know, sent all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the question is, was there a, was it a search? Was it a Fourth Amendment violation when the police put this uh, beeper on the drum and followed this guy as he drove from, you know, Minnesota to Wisconsin? In the end, the Supreme Court said, no, there is no reasonable expectation of privacy when you are in public, when you're traveling on a public road. So that means, and, and if you think about that for a moment, like that kind of makes sense because, mm -hmm. right, we, sure. we, if, a, if a police officer is standing, you know, outside of my house, can see my car that's parked outside of my house, can see, uh, you know, me biking down the street, can see, you know, whatever is going on on my street with, you know, his or her own two eyes, I think most of us wouldn't have a problem with that. Um, and so this was what was essentially the court's reasoning. They said, you know, anybody could be observing uh, this car driving from Minnesota to Wisconsin. And just because they used this, this, you know, little technology, technological aid, this beeper, to help the police locate the car, 
uh, that's not a big deal. So, so you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy. You don't need a warrant uh, to do something like this. Okay, cool. Um, so now we get to the world of today where we have license plate readers, where we have machines that are commonly in use by law enforcement nationwide. In Oakland, more than 30 um, patrol cars right now have license plate readers on them. Um, these devices can capture at incredible speeds up to 60 plates per second, which is astonishing, right? That's far, far faster than any human uh, could ever do. Uh, far right. faster than, you know, if you put the entire Oakland police force on just writing down, uh, you know, license plates, they would never get anywhere close to what these devices can do. Um, so to me, so and, and if you talk to police, and you say, well, what authority do you have? They cite this Knotts case. They cite this Minnesota drug case. And they say, well, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy when you're in public. Your license plate, by definition, is public. It's visible to everyone, to the police and everyone else. Um, you know, license plates, uh, the purpose of license plates is to associate a certain car with a certain person uh, so that, uh, you know, insurance and the DMV and police and anyone else can can know that that's your car uh, and who's responsible for, for the actions of that car. But I would say that the fact that license plate readers are capturing such great volumes of information, far more than was given up by... Uh, you know, this case in the 80s in Minnesota, that's a whole, to me, that's a wholly different thing. That it's an yeah. entirely different proposition. It's it's on orders of magnitude more information than one person driving on one road from one place to another. Uh, that's an entirely different thing than yeah. when, when law enforcement is collecting this vast quantity of information. Um, and it's important to remember, so so when license plate readers today, how they're used, right, is, is so, a, you know, a, a police car drives down the street, it has license plate readers on it, um, and, and so far I've just been talking about what are often called mobile LPRs, um, but there's also stationary ones, right? There's ones that are mounted in fixed positions so that if you drive past that certain location, you know, your car definitely will get, will get scanned. But uh, for the moment, I'll just stick with the, with the mobile ones. So the way they work is they scan, um, capturing the plates, uh, and they the computer on the police car is constantly comparing you know unknown plates that it sees in the wild to the police's uh, what they often call a hot list right so cars that are stolen or wanted or amber alerts or uh, I learned a fun term from the police a silver alert which is like an elderly person that's like you know gone missing for whatever reason <laughs> um, uh, so you know things like that things that again we want. Law, our law enforcement agencies to, to do um, is to, to do all of those things and investigate those crimes. Um, but then if you ask the question, well, what is the, what is the hit rate, right? What, is, what percentage of scans um, divided by the total number of scans uh, that were taken, right? What is, the, what is the hit rate that, you know, matching a suspected vehicle, right? Yeah. Uh, the answer is, Almost always. In fact, I've never seen an instance where it's been where it's been more than one percent. In Oakland, it's something like zero point two percent, right? So right. the overwhelming majority of the scans that are taken are of law-abiding, tax-paying, uh, regular people like you and me who are just driving around town eating tacos. I assume that's what everybody else is doing in town. <laughs> right. That's what I'm doing. But you know, like like that's what uh, and and it's. And so I don't understand, right? So when I got that that 
list of, of data from just on myself, right? And I could see that the police had scanned me at, you know, Grandin Broadway, a downtown Oakland intersection, three years previous. Mm-hmm. I said, well, what purpose does this serve? Why does the police need to know that I was seen at this intersection three years ago? I've never been arrested. I'm not a suspect. I don't think I'm being investigated for anything. And, you know... I, but again, I think it's I, I don't blame the police. I don't blame the Oakland Police Department for ha- for having these machines and for not, uh, you know, thinking about this. I think that, you know, again, like all of us that kind of reflexively click the archive button in our Gmail, I think it's just that sort of thing. Storage is cheap. Right. So why yep. wouldn't you keep it? Um, yeah. But but uh, and a lot of us, because we've been ignorant of the prevalence of this technology myself included until you know i got weirdly obsessed with it in recent years um you know but i talked to my friends i talked you know local city council members and in oakland this has actually just changed very recently we can talk about that too if you want but um but you know by and large policymakers, judges lawyers activists uh generally speaking are unaware of of the prevalence of this technology and are unaware of its capabilities um and, uh, you know, and so it's uh, it's been a real eye opener for me to learn about what the legal history has been and kind of where we are right now with its, um, you know, prevalence. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's interesting to me. I mean, this is just one one story. There, there's a lot of others in the book that, that touch on other things. But but I think this one is, is really good and, and really representative because you have that that one case where you sort of see how the progression happened, where it's totally understandable, you know, as you noted, that. You know, conceptually, yes, if you're out in public and a police officer sees you or anyone sees you, that's not private information. Um, but the, you know, the big change is just this sort of, you know, gradual uh, change in how technology itself exists over time, where you went from this one situation where you had police, you know, physically putting a device onto something and then following carefully, following this guy. And yes, that was all public to today, where, you know, we basically have. You know, it's, it's it's almost as if you set up police everywhere, constantly scanning everyone, as opposed to you know someone who was a specific suspect where they had to take specific action to follow them, and then you know to to watch their every move. Whereas now we're suddenly in a world where you know police get all of this information all the time, and they have you know eyeballs everywhere, and and you know it's it's kind of incredible how much you know these these cases from the 60s and 70s and 80s now impact things in a very very different world and you know the courts i think what your book represents is how much the courts are still struggling with it and so you know the 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 kind of update to you know to the situation that you're talking about you know, I think of like there was a case uh, about five years ago in the Supreme Court, which you write about also, which is the Jones case. Um, and so, well, actually, do you want to discuss that one and kind of how the Supreme Court sort of dealt with yeah, sure. trying to sure. deal with so, the, these technologies in a more modern sense? Yeah, totally. So so this is a much more uh, a more recent case. Um, Jones, I believe, was decided in, what was it, 2013, 2014? Yeah, some, somewhere some, in that somewhere area. Somewhere around yeah. Uh, but anyway, so Jones, Antoine Jones was a guy who um, was living in Washington, D.C. He operated a nightclub uh, that was called Levels that I was shocked to learn when I looked up the location of this nightclub was across the street from a uh, metro police. That's what they call the D.C. police, uh, mm-hmm. the MPD, uh, a a police yard where they store police cars and stuff. So it was like across the street from a police facility, which is, <laughs> I found amazing. But 
Antoine Jones, the government believed, was um, a drug trafficker. And um, they decided that they were going to monitor uh, his movements. And one of the ways that they were going to do that was that they were going to get uh, sort of a modern version of this, this beeper that we were talking about from, from Minnesota, from the Knotts case. Um, in this case, this was a GPS tracker, right? So this is a much more sophisticated, um, you know, you don't even need to follow the guy. You just need to right. have a computer with a piece of software to watch where he's driving. Um, and so they put this physical GPS tracker onto the undercarriage uh, of his car. And they, it turns out, not, well, in the Knotts case, they didn't have a warrant for that. And, and um, you know, and they didn't need one either. But in this case, the police actually did have a warrant, but it was for, I believe it was for Maryland and it had expired, but he was in D.C. Um, I might have the facts slightly reversed on that, but it was ba basically it was it was expired and it was out of the district, out of the jurisdiction mm -hmm. in which it was authorized. So effectively, that means there was no warrant. There was no valid warrant that the police. Right. Had. Nevertheless, they put the GPS tracker on the car. Uh, they follow him around. He ends up getting arrested. Uh, and again, this case gets challenged um, on this on this Fourth Amendment uh, question. And so the uh, amazingly, though. Unlike maybe some of the older decisions where you and I probably would disagree to, as to the conclusion that the Supreme Court reached. In this case, I definitely agree. And the Supreme Court yep. found, amazingly, 9 to 0. They found that, yes, this is a violation of the Fourth Amendment. The police cannot put a GPS tracker on somebody's car without a warrant. Full stop. Um, different wings of the court disagreed as to the precise legal rationale. Uh, you had the kind of conservative Justice Scalia wing talking about how, you know, this was a, a question of trespass. And trespass actually is a big deal in Fourth Amendment uh, law. Uh, the fact that, that the police had, you know, seized, even if it was just a, you know, a few square inches of this guy's car, right? They, they, they took right. possession, effectively, of a, of a tiny portion of his car. It didn't interfere with the operation of his car. He still drove around and did whatever he was doing. But the fact that they, that they interfered with his property... Um, was of a, an area of concern for um, some members of the court. Uh, other members of the court said, you know, this is just totally invasive of his privacy. Yeah, maybe he was a drug dealer. Maybe he was doing bad stuff. Maybe the police had reason to, uh, you know, suspect him of crimes. Uh, maybe they were conducting a worthwhile investigation. All of that doesn't matter. What matters is if you want to track somebody in this really invasive way that not only reveals... Uh, you know, instances in which he's committing crimes, but instances in which he's, you know, at home with his family or going to church or buying a soda or whatever else Antoine Jones likes to do, um, that's invasive, right? And that's, that's too far. Uh, and if the police want to do that, they need a warrant to do it. Um, so that's very, I think that's pretty hopeful. Um, yeah. Well, it was, uh, I mean, what, what was, what was odd about it and what was, you know, I think the ruling was right. And I think a lot of people agreed that the ruling right was right. But what was, what was problematic was, was sort of what you discussed, which was like the disagreement over why. So, so right. I don't even think there was, there was a majority of judges or justices who agreed on any particular reason. They agreed right. that, that this violated, you know, uh, his rights, but there was very little useful precedent that came out of it because because it was all you know there wasn't a majority agreement on why which is which right. is a little bit strange um right. and and you know has sort of left a lot of the questions still pretty wide open but right. but I, you know i think is also representative of you know 
of the justices and, and the entire judicial system sort of struggling with these issues of what happens when technology goes from, you know, very, very limited to, to everywhere. And, and even, right. uh, you know, to, to jump even further ahead, like, you know, even the issues in the Jones case are, are kind of obsolete, you know, uh, five year, from five years ago, because that involved sticking a GPS on a car. Whereas today, right. you know, most of us carry a GPS in our pocket willingly. Exactly. And then, exactly. And then somebody else has that information and can hand it over, which leads to a whole other topic of the book, which is the, the, the whole concept of, of the third party doctrine, right? Right, so, right, so right. Why don't, why don't we go through that one a little bit? Because I think that's that's one sure. we've talked about a lot on Tectron and I think, think is important and also goes back to the sort of weird one one situation case from, from yeah. the 1970s, right? So you want yeah, to talk about yeah. that? Sure. Yeah, the third party doctrine. You know, I love these – when I first started repi- reporting on legal issues, and I don't know if you had this experience, Mike, when you when you were kind of a, a cub reporter back when, <laughs> but um, you know, I, I I would hear these phrases, or you would encounter these phrases in court papers, or people would say them to you, lawyers would say them to you, the third party doctrine, reasonable expectation of privacy, and what I don't right. think I fully appreciated until until I really dug deep into this is that you know these are specific phrases that come from very specific court cases yep. right and and if you and if you're a privacy law nerd when somebody says to you third party doctrine reasonable expectation of privacy you know you know what case that's talking about you know yep. uh you know that reasonable expectation of privacy comes from uh u.s versus cats 1967 supreme court chapter one of my book um you know and you know that the third party doctrine comes from smith versus maryland i believe it's chapter three of my book um yep and you know kind of what that what that means. But I think for, you know, mere mortals, non lawyers like you and me, uh, it's not always obvious, you know, what that what that means. So the third party doctrine is this idea that, you know, Mike, you are calling me on your phone right now. You're in the on the peninsula somewhere, I'm across the bay in Oakland. Um I use uh, Cricket as my cell phone provider. I don't know what provider you use, but let's say let's say it's uh Cricket as well, just for simplicity's sake. Um, the fact that you have called me using Cricket's network means that that just that fact, the fact that you have called me, that person A has called person B, is not private because Cricket, the third party, has basically made that call possible, right? So we have disclosed the fact that we have called one another to this right. third party Cricket. Therefore, the legal argument goes, neither of us has a privacy interest in the fact that we have called one another. Even though I don't really understand, again, this is like the, you know, mere mortal non-lawyer speaking. <laughs> yep. uh, I don't understand how you would make a call without going through a phone company, but whatever. Um, <laughs> right. So I mean, the, 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 way, the way I look at it, actually, and, 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 and to try and stretch it out even further for the non-lawyers, yeah. one of the ways that I, I think about the, the third-party doctrine is, is if – you know, if we had a third person with us, so you and me are are, are talking about this, and sure, um, and 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 somebody else is 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 there witnessing the conversation as well, right, um, right. And and then I should they say go, I should say for I should say for the listeners, I'm recording this interview from the inside of my bedroom closet, which is not <laughs> very big. So uh, a third person, at least in my, I don't know where you are, but but uh, would there's not very much room for another person in this closet. Okay. Well, well, <laughs> but well, anyway. well let, let, let's just say we were conducting this, you know, in a coffee shop or something. And, I understand. And, I understand. And and you know, we had uh, you know a, a mutual friend or yeah. or you know a, a family member or somebody else was, sure. was there and and listening sure. to our conversation and then. 
they sure. went and told somebody else what we were talking about. Right. In that case, that third person, you know, they heard our conversation. They have their own rights to then reveal what was said in the right. conversation. It, it may upset you or me, but we don't right. have a specific, you know, privacy totally. interest because, totally. you know, they were there and they were a party in some sense. But yeah. then that gets, you know, extracted into the situation where, you know, where you're talking about with like Cricket Wireless, where they 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 don't have the recording of the phone call, hopefully, right. <laughs> you know, but but hopefully. they have the record that right. that we have called each other, and then right. they are free to then, you know according to law enforcement to then give that out to whoever without exactly. needing a, a warrant or anything else because it's right. it's it's their information that they can do anything with and it's not it's no longer our information and our privacy interest. Yeah, you right. got it. Yeah. And so this 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 phrase, this idea, the third party doctrine comes from again, like with the the license plates and the reasonable mm-hmm. expectation of privacy in public, the the Minnesota one, uh this comes from this case called Smith versus Maryland. Smith versus Maryland involves a guy stealing a lady's purse late one night in Baltimore in the 70s. Um, And this guy, you know, stealing purses is one thing, but apparently this was not enough for Mr. Smith. Um, Smith decides that not only is he going to steal this lady's purse, but he's also going to make harassing phone calls. He's going to call her repeatedly (laughs) and just like freak her out because, you know, he's such a nice dude. Um, So... Amazingly, he at, at one point he calls her from a nearby payphone, uh, payphones figure uh, in a couple of these stories. Um, yeah. He calls her from a payphone and he tells this woman, uh, I think her name was Patricia, to step outside of her house and he drives by again just to like freak her out because he's you know he's that's what yeah. he likes to do I guess. Anyway, so eventually the she you know she goes to the police and she's obviously very disturbed by this and they the police get uh this thing called a pen register which is essentially you can think of it as like a like a call log um we yep. would call this metadata today right we would call you know you know mike called sarus on this day at this time right that's what it does um so it um it shows uh that you know one of the times that he called her uh, he called her from from his house, and because this is you know back when there were much fewer phone companies, uh, it was relatively easy for the police to figure out uh, that it came from this particular house. Uh, so eventually, uh, they get three days worth of call records, and they eventually find this guy, and eventually he gets arrested and charged, and so on and so on. Uh, again, this the 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 search of the phone records is challenged, um, and again, this goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the um, the attorney general of the state of Maryland successfully argues that um, that there is no reasonable expectation of privacy in these phone records that they that they obtained uh, from the phone company. And, uh, you know, they're not private. He was calling her and the the, uh, you know, just like you said, with the example earlier um, of, you know, somebody eavesdropping in at a cafe or whatever. um, Similarly, uh, the phone company can give up those records to to the police without a warrant. It's no it's not a it's no problem. It it doesn't implicate the Fourth right. Amendment. And that's what the court ruled. That and that's what that's what gives us this third party doctrine. And so what that has meant in more modern times is that in the wake of the September eleventh attacks, uh the NSA or some, you know, enterprising lawyer at the NSA uh <laughs> looked at this case and realized that, hey, if 
no if if one person if one guy in Baltimore doesn't have privacy rights over three days worth of his call records, then it follows that nobody has privacy ri- rights over their call records. Then it follows that we, the NSA, can uh, you know get authority from the FISA court to capture all of the metadata, all of the phone records on all Americans for years and years and years on end. And that's what they did. And and that the, like the the legal rationale that they cited was this case, Smith versus Maryland. And interestingly enough, um, the lawyer uh, who I interviewed for the book, this guy, Stephen Sachs, who won this case, won Smith versus Maryland, has said, has told me um, that he thinks that that is a, is a, in his words, a bridge too far. That that, and this is the guy who won the case. This is the, right. the prosecutor. You know, he's like, look, this is not what we, you know, nobody imagined uh, that this is where this would go. Uh, and it's interesting because I talk one of my favorite uh, little pieces of historical trivia that I found uh, in doing the legal research here was I, I dug up a um, a dissent from the Maryland State Appellate Court, uh, and there was a judge who was one of the few black judges in Maryland at that time, Judge Cole. Um, and he and remember Smith versus Maryland is happening just in the wake of Watergate, just in the wake yep. of um, people being really freaked out about the overreaches of government. Um, you've got the church committee and, and all those kinds of other things trying to rein in some of the abuses of the Nixon era. And Judge Cole says, you know, imagine if and this is the 70s where computers are, you know, not very common and not relative to today, not very sophisticated. But he, he says, you know, imagine if this data was fed into a big computer. Imagine, the, you know, what that would mean. And I when I read that and I'd never seen that anywhere else until I found no. this dissent, I. I was like, holy shit, this guy has predicted the NSA metadata program in the 1970s. That's amazing, yeah. right? And he was he was one dissenting judge in like an appellate court in Maryland. So, you know, it's maybe easy to be overlooked. But I, I was, you know, I, I, I was just astonished when I saw that, um, that, that, you know, yeah, very few people had the foresight that Judge Cole did uh, at that time. But he saw it. He understood what it meant. Um, and, you know, kudos to him. Um, and I think that's trying to understand what these rulings mean when we have technology that is either you know in with us now or will will be with us soon right earlier we were talking about license plate readers one of the things that i am concerned about is you know if it's true if the you know u.s legal system says that we don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy when we're in public then that means that the body cameras that you know, Oakland police officers wear today and that many police officers in many cities in America wear today, those body cameras very, very, very soon, like within the next year or two, if not sooner than that, um, will have facial recognition capability. And there already is a really good database of all of our faces, right? Our DMVs, our state (laughs) DMVs, if you have a driver's license or a state ID, the government already has a picture of your face. If you have a passport, the government already has a picture of your face. So, yep. you know, that's a great thing to compare against to, right? <laughs> and so if if now we have tools that can capture 60 plates per second, um, yeah. I, I wonder, you know, when the first generation of facial recognition body cameras come out, uh, you know, what that will mean, how many faces will they be able to capture per second, right? Uh, and what that will mean when... Uh, you know, not only are the police capturing, you know, my car at certain places, but perhaps they're capturing my face. Um, yeah. Or if you want to, you know, take it even one step further, imagine some future machine where uh, the police are able to gather and collect 
you know, our DNA off of the hair that we just, you know, naturally <laughs> drop off of our bodies or whatever, right? And we just had this yeah. recent Golden State Killer, uh, uh, you know, yeah. suspect who was arrested very recently here in California. Um, and that has raised a whole new slew of questions about, uh, you know, people who voluntarily give up their DNA to, you know, companies and, you know, right. um, and analysis that's performed in that. But I, I imagine a, like, future you know, DNA reader of some type where, uh, you know, just like with the license plates or, or with the faces, you know, recognizing and capturing and recording people's DNA. And I imagine also a future politician who makes the argument that in the name of law enforcement, you know, everybody at birth needs to have their DNA registered with the government. <laughs> um, like, I feel like that's, sure. the, I mean, it sounds kind yeah, of, of dystopian and, and weird and crazy, but it also feels very, like, if if some politician made that announcement today, it would not surprise me at all. Like that, that, yeah, that feels very. Totally. It could happen any day. I feel like, and I'm concerned yeah, that if that if we don't and, have and, adequate and, and, and rules, in fact, sorry, pe- right, no, yeah. I was going to say. In fact, I would argue that they would probably point to the capturing of the the Golden State Killer as an example right. of why that would be right. a good thing. Because they're saying, look, right. you know, we 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 solved this cold case of that you right. know involved many murders, and think of how much more we could do if we had everyone's right. DNA. Right. Right, right. And I think that that's an important, you know, I think policymakers, police, citizens, journalists, activists, lawyers, right, we all are trying to figure out where that balance is. And this is an issue that has been at the core of the American Republic since its founding, right? One of the issues that the founders were concerned with is the overreach of government power, right? The Bill of Rights is a laundry list of things that the government cannot do. It, you know, Congress shall make no law, you know, right. shall not be infringed, right? It establishes limits on the government's power. And the founders, um, you know, I think understood that uh, if the government is allowed to run amok, if the government is allowed to have general warrants and kick in people's doors for no reason and tear up people's homes for no reason and bring, you know, quarter soldiers, the, the you know, forgotten uh, Third Amendment, right? <laughs> yes, the Third Able Amendment. Able to, to quarter to quarter soldiers in people's homes uh, and and be invasive of their physical space. Uh, yeah. That that is that is too much. That we don't we don't want that. Um, and yet, I think it's it's not unreasonable to say if we had more surveillance, whether it's body cameras or license plate readers or drones or DNA you know, databases or whatever, I think there's a reasonable argument to be made that you would reduce crime, that you would be safer, right? Our entire national security apparatus is based on this idea that that we are going to spend trillions of dollars, I guess indefinitely now, uh, you know, in the name of protecting Americans against terrorism. And we've we've created new agencies and we've... um, created new databases and new systems. Um, we have, you know, TSA pre-clearance at the airport for 80 bucks for five years, which is a good deal. Um, uh, you know, but, but like, you know, these are the, these are the kind of systems that we have created in the name of national security. And yet, uh, you know, when we're talking about domestic law enforcement, um, unfortunately, uh, you know, Oakland is a city where on average 80 something people get murdered per year. Um, and, that is tragically that is uh you know 80 people a year would not get murdered in Oakland if right if we had much more um you know if we had cameras inside and outside every home if we sure. had 
you know, right? License, but I mean, instead of ha- you know, right? Yeah, you get to the sort of you know reductio ad absurdum arguments of right. I mean, if everyone were spied on entirely and and everything they were done was you know piped directly to law enforcement and the intelligence agencies, then you know, yeah, you would reduce crime. You would also create a, a you know hugely uh, dystopian nightmare. Right. You would, you know, yeah, you you would create. I mean, you were saying at the top of the show, you were t- t- describing how we have a surveillance state now. You'd create yep. you know a surveillance state times a thousand if that were to be yeah. the case um uh you know and and so um you know i don't i don't that's not the world we live in fortunately but um you know it's easy to understand if you are you know an analyst or a lawyer at the nsa or if you're a police chief or if you're just a regular beat cop right you can understand how these tools would be useful in your job right uh, and you want to yep. oh, put totally. terrorists away you want to put criminals away um i get that um and but, but at it, the same but time it all take- yeah, I mean, it takes us away from from that general spirit of, of exactly. What, you know, we we recognize as a free society, we recognize that there are trade offs, and some of those trade offs right. are that you know, guilty people don't always get caught, and sometimes guilty people go free, and right. and yet, you know, what this is this is doing is changing that equation quite quite drastically. So right. so. Um, this is this is fantastic, and and you know we're we're going a little long, but it's it's really <laughs> interesting, and it's 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 wonderful. So I did want to try and close out on on at least something of a slightly more optimistic, or at least from my viewpoint, sure, a slightly more yeah. optimistic viewpoint, which is like yeah. the 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 Riley decision, um, yeah, which you talk about as well, which is one. This is also a very this is a much more recent case, even from the Supreme Court, where where you, for the first time I think we sort of get an inkling that the Supreme Court, or at least some of the justices on the Supreme Court, are beginning to say, hey, wait a second. There may be yeah. some issues with the way technology totally. has evolved. So, so why don't yeah. we talk about that as, as sort of the final final case that sure. we'll talk about? Yeah, sure thing. So this is a case called Riley versus California. Um, and, uh, you know, I do love my home state. Um, occasionally <laughs> we get things right. But, um, but yeah, so Riley versus California is a case that involves a uh, suspected uh, gang member out of San Diego. And a guy, you know, he's driving in San Diego. He gets pulled over by the police. Uh, they think that he's a gang member. They think that, um, you know, they take him down to the station. And eventually, uh, you know, so he's arrested and they take his phone. And one of the things that, that they do, uh, that the police officers do, is they start... And he has a very early smartphone. Um, I forget the precise model number, but it's not an Android. It's not an iPhone. It's like mm-hmm. a long-forgotten uh, smart, you know, early, early smartphone. Uh, and, you know, just as a fun little tidbit, uh, the Stanford lawyer who successfully won this case uh, for Riley at the Supreme Court, uh, David Fisher, who's a Stanford law professor, um, keeps a version of this phone... Not the same one that he uses in the crime, but the same model keeps it <laughs> right. in a file in his in his office. He showed it to me when I when I went and nice. interviewed him, um, which I think is just awesome. Um, but anyway, so this guy, so they take his phone and they um, they they just open it up. It doesn't have a passcode on it. They open it up and they start scrolling through it. They start looking at his contacts. They start looking at his videos, at his photos, um, and they believe that this corroborates their theory that this guy is a gang member. Um, there's videos of him. Uh, there's um, listings on his contacts for uh, what the police believe to be the prefix CK, which they think stands for Crip Killer, uh, as in the Crips, uh, you know, street gang. Um, mm-hmm. And so they they have reason to believe that this guy is a gang member. And eventually he gets, uh, you know, uh, prosecuted for, for all kinds of, of gang-related things. And again, this case gets challenged after the Supreme Court. 
um, brought by um, the Stanford uh, Legal Clinic, which is uh, the first um, law school clinic that focuses specifically on Supreme Court cases. Uh, it's a very interesting uh, entity. So yeah. anyway, um, the and the argument that they that the police make is they say, look, uh, you know, people can search. Uh, or law enforcement can search a person, right? We've all watched, you know, police procedural cop shows, right? Where they, they make the guy get out of the car and they pat him down and they, you know, empty his pockets or whatever. And again, we can understand that. We can understand that if you're a police officer, you don't want, uh, you know, the person that you're arresting to have a gun or a knife or something dangerous uh, on them that potentially could, could inflict harm on the officer. Um, and so they say, just like we can, you know, make you empty your pockets, just like we can, uh, you know, physically pat you down, uh, you know, uh, and see if there's anything, you know, like that, anything dangerous. Um, it makes sense that we can search your phone, too. Uh, this is what the government argued. And what um, Fisher and his team of, of, you know, law students from Stanford uh, and others argued was, no, searching your phone is totally different than searching your pockets, that it's very invasive and it's very uh, personal. And yeah, even if this guy is a gang member, he's probably got, you know, all kinds of other things on his phone that have nothing to do with his alleged, you know, criminal activity. Uh, you know, maybe he has pictures of his kids or, or, or whatever else, you know, that's that's totally unrelated. Um, and so in the end, the, the Supreme Court, as you say, came to what I would argue is the correct decision, which is they, they said, no, you can't search somebody's phone without a warrant when they're being arrested. You can't do it. Um, right. And again, like the Jones case, it was unanimous. Um, and to me, those two cases taken together uh, give, I think, a little bit of hope to the idea that uh, some of the justices, uh, well, in this case, all of the justices, um, are coming to terms with what you know the modern realities uh, are. Uh, there's a famous line in the um, opinion written, I believe, by Chief Justice Roberts, um, where he says, you know, where he sort of laughs off the government's comparison that searching a phone is like searching somebody's pockets. And he says uh, something to the effect of, you know, that's like saying that a ride on horseback is equivalent to a flight to the moon. Um, you know, yeah, they both get you from one place to another, but they're entirely different, you know, entirely different uh, modes of transportation. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, that is, that that does give me a little bit of hope. And uh, you know, as as we record this, we're still waiting for another privacy case to be decided. Um, that's called United States versus Carpenter. That involves yep. uh, some guys um, holding up some radio shacks and cell phone stores in Michigan and Ohio, and the police obtained 128 days of their cell site location records. So not not GPS, not a physical GPS on them, but um, similar to that. In that, you know, all of the instances, you know, every few seconds of where their phone was seen, according to their cell phone provider, Metro PCS. Um, and the police were able to obtain that without a warrant. And again, the ACLU uh, representing uh, this guy, uh, Tim Carpenter, say, you know, that far exceeds what the police would ordinarily uh, be able to do. And even if he was involved in, you know, sticking up these radio shacks, it is invasive of his privacy because it shows, you know, that he goes to church on Sundays or he visits his grandma on Saturdays or whatever else he does. Um, and that's the government should not yep. have that power. Um, and so we'll see if uh, if, you know, how the, the court will come down, because right now the law does allow for uh, the police, for the government to obtain um, this type of information without a warrant. So I'm I would like to be hopeful that, you know, Carpenter 
Um, you know, it might not be a unanimous 9-0, but I would like to believe that we could get five justices uh, to rule in, you know, on the side of privacy. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, lots of interesting stuff. And and uh, for those of you listening, I think uh, by now it should be obvious that uh, Sarus is, is quite a storyteller <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and and digs deep into these cases. And we didn't we, there's there's a lot more in the book. Don't think that that if you listen to this podcast, you, you, heard, you heard it all. In fact, we didn't even we didn't even touch on the, the whole case that, that gets into the the expectation of privacy issue and how that how that phrase came about. Right. Um, and, right. and that's really fascinating, too. And that's, that's the first chapter of the book. So, so for folks who enjoyed this conversation and, and enjoyed learning about these cases, I, I really recommend the book. Again, it's called uh, Habeas Data, uh, Privacy Versus the Rise of Surveillance Tech. And uh, it, it's, it's a really, really fascinating book and digs deep and has all these wonderful stories and anecdotes that go along with it um, and, and still raises these important issues that, that we should all be thinking about and, and hopefully the Supreme Court is, is thinking about and understanding. Um, but, um, Sarus, I, I wanted to you know, thank you so much for, for taking the time and, well, for writing the book, but then for taking the time and, and, and talking with us really, really interesting stuff that I think, uh, I think most of our listeners will, will enjoy. Well, thank you so much for having me, Mike. I've been a big fan of you and your work for a long time, too. Great. And um, thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh, we'll be back next week with uh, something else.